Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. A British commander in Afghanistan tells us he's optimistic about his future, while a former soldier-turned-author says we got it wrong in the first place. What's Putin's game with the Ukraine? And we hear from a Jordanian prince about his country's strong relationship with the British Army. I always felt that the British Army didn't have the equipment they deserved. And they're the best soldiers I've ever seen. The man who's commanded British forces in Helmand for the last six months says he absolutely believes Afghan forces are ready to defend their country. Brigadier James Woodham says British troops can be proud of the part they've played. He's been speaking to our reporter James Hurst, who joins us now from Camp Bastion. James, what did he have to say? Well, having overseen the closure of Task Force Helmand uh, a week ago, Brigadier Woodham is at the end of his tour, and I I was asking him really about what has changed in the six months that he's here, and looking forward, are the Afghans ready to defend their country? And he says, well, actually, he's seen them. They've been doing it since May of last year, and he certainly cites the, the election, which they defended, that they guarded over the weekend, as evidence that the ANSF are now capable to work on their own. But he said that, really, the, when you really want to look at change, look back to his last tour, Herrick 11, back in 2009-2010, and a lot has changed, he says, since then. I think there's been great strides made here. We have managed to clear the insurgents out of the main populated areas of Helmand. We have been able to build and train um, uh, an Afghan security forces that are of the right size and the right capability to be able to deliver security to their own people. In that security bubble, there has been some development which has increased access to education and to health. And we've seen people being able to go about their business, taking their crops to market in a way that perhaps they would have felt threatened in the past. Put yourself back in 2010. What would you have thought of that that scenario, had you been told it back at the the worst times of 2009-2010? I'm absolutely clear that if commanders, uh, commanders had been offered that as a package that was on the shelf back in the winter of 2009-10, and I think we would have bought it there and then, because I think it is a really good outcome for this part of Afghanistan. I think the sense of optimism that has become apparent uh, following the elections has to be a force for good here. So I think we should be really proud of uh, that which has been achieved here. And when I speak to my counterparts in the Afghan security forces and the Afghan government, they are really clear. None of this would have been possible without the investment of ISAF. But of course he points out the job is not yet fully over. Some of his soldiers are here for another couple of months and then there's still up to nine months of Herrick 20 to go and he says the danger is not yet gone. And James, the presidential elections were held last Saturday, reported in positive terms over the weekend. Is that still the view? I think people are still have some of that sense of optimism. I think they are refining their view because you get information a little more slowly in this country than uh, you are used to in the UK. Uh, what is absolutely clear is there was no spectacular Taliban attack that many people had feared. Uh, you know, the security forces largely did secure these elections. That remains a big tick. The turnout, something like 58%, significantly higher than last time. That looks like a big tick, but people are putting some question marks by it because we now have something like 3,000 complaints about the conduct of the election. A lot of those are about conduct of officials, but, but some are allegations of election fraud. And if ballot papers are deemed to 
be fraudulent, they will be thrown out. So that turnout figure might have to be revised. So people are being a little cautious about that now. Um, and, you know, there, there are we're not seeing the same level of political complaint about alleged fraud at this stage, but there are, it's going to be days before we even start to get initial results, weeks before we get final results. I think actually looking at it, you know, there is positivity there, but people are perhaps going to hold back on saying it has met that uh, criteria of transparent and credible that the West has set. All right, James Hurston, Cambastian, thank you. Um, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. Christopher, what do you think of what Brigadier James Woodham had to say there? I think the basis of it is is that you, uh, we've said this before, that it's very wrong to ask the wrong question, like, are things better? You've got to ask the right question, like, how has it changed? Or what's, that's the important part of it. And the second thing is that what's happening now, have you got the sustainability there? Is what is in place sustainable, let's say, over the next five, ten years? What do you know, for example, the position in Pakistan related to what's going on in Afghanistan. What's the position in the Central Asian Republics? What about India and Pakistan together? What influence they have? One country doesn't want the other one to have uh, any uh, overall influence. Those are the important aspects to think of. Be joyful about what's happened. You know, the fact that there weren't Taliban actions, etc. But these are sort of headline bits. The major important thing is, let's say, the next five, ten years. Well, also listening to that was Dr Mike Martin, a former TA officer, an academic and an advisor on political risk. He's just published An Intimate War, an oral history of the Helmand conflict from 1978 to 2012. Hello to you. Um, Hi. Would it be an exaggeration to say that the theme of your book is that certainly the British and the Americans have never really understood Afghanistan, its tribal complexity? and how to handle the war. Exactly that. That is the theme of the book. Um, And not just us, but also the Russians and the Pakistanis. Outsiders fail to understand the complexity of places. Because it's a a highly factionalised society. Um, Conflicts there drag on for hundreds of years. People remember things for hundreds of years. So, for example, when the British turned up in 2006, immediately the Hellmanis looked at it and said, ah, you were here in 1880. And you also hear in 1839, and they remembered our actions in a way that we ourselves didn't. Mm. Everything you said um, in your book, um, mm. a lot of people have been saying since 2006. Well, mm. What's different about what you're saying? Uh, this, uh, An Intimate War, is the first book um, that covers the war from the Helmandi perspective. Mm. There are shelves and shelves of books about the war in Helmand, but they're written from the perspective of the British or the Americans. And this is, if you like, the other side of the hill. Interviews in Pushtu, 150 Helmandis telling their perceptions of the Because you can speak the language fluently. Yes. What kind of a difference do you think that made to your understanding of the conflict and to the way that the ISAF troops have been behaving? I think um, ultimately what you're trying to do um, with uh, our operations in Afghanistan and Iraq is um, nothing less than social engineering. That's what counterinsurgency is and that is what development work is. And if you're trying to socially engineer a country and you don't speak the language, it seems a bit of a folly. You must have gained insights which might have been hard to communicate to the commanders you were working with. Myself and the others who spoke pushed to, yes, I think we did gain those insights through speaking the language. Um, I think most commanders did understand them. They weren't very complicated insights. Most of it's driven by basic human emotions like jealousy. The difficulty for the commanders that I advised was integrating this 
bottom-up narrative of a local conflict with the top-down, the overall sort of insurgency narrative that we have of an ideological conflict. So just tell us, when, when ISAF went in... What did they think the conflict was about and what was your understanding of what it was about and did that opinion change at all? I think uh, overall, and there have been uh, you know, a great improvement in ISAF understanding over the time, over the period. Um, but generally, we, we tend to see the legitimate government of Afghanistan supported by international troops fighting uh, the Taliban and the Taliban are bad and they're an insurgency, it's a very pejorative term. So we see it as an ideological conflict between, let's say, democracy and Islamism. Um, what I found was that the conflict was actually a, a, a multifocal tribal war, tribal war between different families and clans, and what they were fighting over was land and water and poppy and jealousy and all those sorts of things. I'm just interested to know: did, did you go in with that original idea, and were you surprised what you found? Absolutely. When I first went there in 2008, I was very naive and, and bushy. So you saw it pretty much absolutely. black and white, just like everybody absolutely, else. Absolutely, absolutely, and I. I had the luxury of speaking the language and the army supported me through my PhD and so I was able to develop the sort of further understanding. Do you feel that the political and military leaders have grasped what you see as the reality? And if they didn't, why didn't they? I don't think they have. Um, and I think the reason for that is because if you understand the conflict for what it really is, which is, you know, a, a tribal spat in the desert, um, that almost removes our raison d'etre of be there. Our, our position um, within the campaign, within ISAF, within the construct of the coalition, is based it wasn't upon... The, the original reason for going in, was it? Absolutely, but yeah, those are separate things. Going in in 2001 and al-Qaeda and Taliban, that's not what I'm arguing about. I'm talking about the intervention in Helmand in 2006. Mm. So, um, and I think that if you understand the conflict to be a low-level civil war, that is not something that you would intervene in, because that's very messy. Christopher? I'm just struck um, also, if you look at the history of what we've understood intervening in, in, in conflicts or going in in a big way, uh, Iraq. Mm. The Americans, when I was in Washington talking to the Americans just before we went in the first time, mm. um, I was struck by the fact that they really didn't know where they were going. Mm. I mean, some of them are quite high level, mm. you know, one star level, mm. did not know where Iraq the, was. The apocryphal stories that George Bush had to have explained to him the difference between Shia and Sunni. Oh, that's, well, yeah, but that, it wasn't just George Bush. I mean, there were people who were mm. going in as interpreters, yeah. uh, the original interpreters, and, 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 and didn't know. Uh, now, I think you've got the, the British, the Americans, but the British, to some extent, have got this whole thing. If you go back to, you know, the, the early 70s and uh, Oman, it took them a long time, and that was very sort of boys' own war, which you had plenty of time to sort of ingratiate yourself with the Furqa, etc. A war against a, a bunch of guys at PDRY still didn't understand what it was all about, and we were actually invited in. And so there's a whole history of going to war without having a clue where the place is, what it's about, what are the people are about, and even don't know what mm. the people are about. And also forget the idea of carrying your version of democracy with you. D Dr Mike Martin, do, do you feel that, that we are learning from these experiences? Do you feel that now there is an awareness that we do have to know an awful lot more about the world and what's happening on the ground just in case? There's certainly some noises being made from the MOD that seem to be the right sort of noises. So, for example, uh, General Peter Wall spoke at Chatham House last month where he highlighted the fact that what we really have failed to do is understand those sort of cultural, social, political dynamics. We've sort of heard this stuff before, so we have to see... You're whether quite cynical, we're, are you? 
I was super cynical. I tell you, uh, if you if you go back, and this is really the start of the of, of, of the last troubles in, in in Northern Ireland, when the intelligence corps was down at Ashford, still just moved from Mansfield, so we were talking about the mid sixties, uh, late sixties. Um, the brigadier there set up with all the interpreters, with all the interrogation staff, cells that would learn more about places they were likely to have to go mm. into. And don't forget, this is just immediately post, post-colonial Britain. The whole thing lasted eight months before people lost interest. Nobody was in command. When it needed a new commander, it wasn't appointed, and the whole thing fell apart. All right, Christmas stay with us. Dr Mike Martin, one word. Are you going back to Afghanistan anytime soon? Uh, not with the military. All right, Dr Mike Martin, thank you for your time today. Sit rep with Still to come, we hear from Jordan's Prince Talal bin Mohammed on his country's relationship with the British Army and why a former NATO Secretary General thinks Scottish independence would be a calamity for British defence. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Ukraine has said it won't prosecute pro-Russian activists occupying official buildings in two eastern cities if they surrender their weapons. The separatists are holding buildings in the cities of Luhansk and Donetsk. Ukraine has accused Russia of stirring up the unrest. Moscow has denied that. BBC correspondent Bridget Kendall joins us now. Hello, Bridget. What could we see happen here? Well, the Kiev government set a deadline. They say that these um, activists have to leave these buildings by tomorrow morning. And if they do come out, they say they'll hold talks. And also the acting president of Ukraine has said there won't be any prosecutions. So they'll kind of have an amnesty. So they're pushing very hard to see if they can get them to leave. But it seems as though it's the hardcore activists who are in these buildings, certainly in Luhansk, Uh, It's the um, security headquarters. They have a lot of weapons. The people inside say they're not just heavily armed, but they are veterans, people who fought in the Afghan war and elsewhere, and the ones who have stayed behind will fight. So possibly, in Luhansk at least, it looks as though the situation is pretty tense, as though there may be some sort of storming of the building. Given what we are seeing now and what we've seen in recent weeks, do you think we've witnessed the end, for the foreseeable future at least, of the post-1991 European dream of a quietly governed continent? This has opened a fault line between East and West. There's no doubt about that. And I suppose the sense you get is that as long as President Putin is in charge in Russia, there is going to be this chilly and tense relationship And uh, a certain amount of danger that something could spark off on the ground which could lead to a conflagration. Indeed. And what do you think President Putin will be thinking at the moment? What, What does he want to get out of this? Well, he's been remarkably consistent in what he said he wants in uh, Ukraine, he doesn't want it to turn Western. He doesn't want it to become antagonistic to Russia and turn its back on Russia. So this isn't just about its military and diplomatic posture. It's also about trade and other sorts of links with Russia, which up till now have been very, very close. After all, until the collapse of the Soviet Union, they were to all intents and purposes one country. In all sorts of ways, Mm. they're getting ready to turn their back on the West. Bridget Kendall, thank you for joining us. Christopher? Tell you, it's the military side of this we have to think about, shouldn't we? Uh, General Breedlove, uh, Secure Supreme Allied Command of Europe, has this week done a complete disposition of all the Russian forces and also their capabilities for the politicians. But he can't tell the politicians of what the intentions are. He's been making that very clear, and it went to the Joint Intelligence Committee in London mm. with this underlying thing, no intentions. The other thing that's happened 
is that this week, uh, or the past couple of weeks actually, they've sent uh, groups to different places like Slovakia, uh, to Croatia, uh, setting up new organizations, military organizations. Mm. And there's been a three-week exercise in Rammstein, Rammstein Dust, which is uh, how do you put together a first reaction tactical command? Now, if you happen to be sitting in Moscow, in the Kremlin, and your name is Putin, you look and you say, these guys are doing things that if I did them, they would be dead worried. And that, I think, is the mm. height of the analysis. The military side of things. Politically, there's supposed to be this meeting next week involving Russia, Ukraine, the EU and America. It is much likely to come out of that. Well, the first thing that's come out of it, if it takes place, is the fact that it's taking place. It's very important, that, because they haven't met at all since the whole thing started. Mm -hmm. That's the important thing. The other thing which is coming out of it, and it's, really, or it's more or less coming out of Moscow, there are certain people in Moscow who are quieter voices. They're not going to storm up and say, Putin, God, you got this wrong, and we ought to stop this nonsense straight away. No. But there are signs that Putin actually has to, has to involve and has to satisfy an internal uh, opinion at quite a high level. Might that have much effect? Uh, it won't have any effect next week. Mm -hmm. And in fact, next week, uh, it will be probably a question of, we've got these talks... What are we willing to do? Are we willing to talk again? And if, you, if we come back next week and say they've agreed to meet the following week, then we're getting somewhere. Mm. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Since 2010, Royal Engineers preparing to deploy to Afghanistan have gone to Jordan for training. Exercise Pashtun Links allows British troops to practice dealing with roadside bombs in a similar terrain as they will find in Helmand province. The country has close military ties with Britain. From 1921 until independence in 1946, the British had power and jurisdiction over the territory and helped to set up the armed forces. Prince Talal bin Mohammed is special advisor to King Abdullah II. He spoke to our reporter Laura Hawkins about the Jordanian military and its strong relationship with the British military. My wish for our army is that we have British operational doctrine and training and the military spirit unit cohesion, unit history, pride in our, in, our, in our history, our military history. And at the same time, you know, we have American equipment, which the Americans have been very generous in providing us with. So kind of have the best of both worlds. I was, I was telling you, uh, Colonel, that, um, that I always felt that the British Army didn't have the equipment they deserved. And they're the best soldiers I've ever seen um, in terms of professionalism, attention to detail, fighting spirit, camaraderie, and all these things. And um, I always hope that they get the, the equipment that they do deserve. We're very proud of our shared history, which dates back to 1916. So 98 years of a close and continuous relationship, um, which is something that is not to be um, underplayed at all. Now, Jordan is surrounded by several countries that can be quite volatile. Yes. Um, why do you think since 1973 it hasn't actually being in combat, if you like? Well, we haven't had, um, you know, uh, what we call two-up, one-back combat or, you know, a conventional arms. Mainly uh, the astute politics of our king, our late King Hussein and King Abdullah, has kept us out of every regional war. And so we have two generations of soldiers who have joined and retired without being involved in major combat. We have had smaller-scale operations. We fought in Armand in 1975. We have uh, a continuous anti-terrorist threat on our northern border, dating back to the 1970s, and um, UN peacekeeping deployment. I think we're one of the largest contributors globally of uh, UN peacekeeping troops, 
and we have taken casualties there, and of course we have other deployments in other places. Um, but in terms of um, you know, um, open combat, we haven't had since 1973, which in this region is a tremendous achievement. Um, obviously you want to keep your army sharp, but to be in the Middle East and not have seen conflict or open combat in 40 years is in itself a miracle. And it's a political miracle, and it's a testament to our political leadership. Like any country and like anybody, there is some discontent. Mm -hmm. So when demonstrations or protests happen, they don't seem to escalate too badly. Why do you think that is, and what is it that they're actually... I think that, you know, that, you know, we have a sort of understanding that you can go so far, but only so far. And also they realise that how good they have it here. When you see the West Bank and Palestine, you see Syria, you see Iraq, um, Egypt, um, and other countries, Libya, other countries around us in Yemen, that uh, they realize that, uh, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I. And then on to a good thing. I think the most important thing in the developing world is stability and security. And um, people vote with their feet. And so they all come to Jordan. The Palestinians came to Jordan, the Syrians now, before then the Iraqis. And for us, it's the biggest compliment that you can receive, even though it's a very heavy burden on our society. Regarding the refugees, though, can you cope with that burden? Well, you know, it's very difficult. There are probably a, there are varying figures about how many Syrians there are in Jordan, not just in the camps, but in Syrian society. Obviously, we'd like to, you know, be host them all, but we can't. Um, you can't buy water. You know, water either comes from rain or from desalination. And... Uh, we're in a drought situation this year, and we don't have a desalination facility. Most of our uh, foreign currency reserves goes towards buying energy, um, which we import 100% of, and especially since our Egyptian natural gas pipeline has been blown up repeatedly since the start of the Arab Spring. Um, so it is an unfortunate situation, but the very fact that they come here is because we have an army, an army that protects Jordan, that keeps us safe and stable, um, that isn't the biggest or the flashiest, but that is effective. And um, our soldiers will defend their homeland and will do whatever it takes to keep the, the status quo in Jordan. That was Prince Talal bin Mohammed talking to BFBS reporter Laura Hawkins. Christopher, what's the basic reason for this special relationship? Well, it, it goes back, he was right at the beginning, um, from the 1920s until 1948. Uh, this was... Uh, part of the British mandate, the so-called who looks after cutting up, in the, after we did in 1920, cutting up the Middle East, which we formed Iraq out of it, and mm. Lebanon, the French had Lebanon, etc. Um, also, you've got to remember, this is the Hashemite kingdom. It, it is a royal kingdom in the sense that we would un actually understand it. And the princes, and not just the princes, but sort of senior members of families, have traditionally, and since the, since the 40s, been sent to Sandhurst. And there is a, that sort of amazing connection, double connection. There's been this connection with British royalty and, uh, and, and, and the kingdom itself, which goes back to a guy called Glub Pasha, who, who, who had command of the Transjordanian army. Mm. Uh, that was the British connection. And then you've got this mentality of people learning to, at Sandhurst, to, to dressing eight minutes between sort of uh, being, being on parade and having to be in, the PT, in a PT gym, etc. Hmm. Having the same sort of uh, mentality. And they're valued. And also the extraordinarily, extraordinarily intelligent analysis 
of what's been going on in the Middle East, and therefore they've been very much part of the British family. It's not to be exaggerated. The pr- prince there, very proud of, of no combat. They were saying in 40, he was saying in forty years. Just, just how well? That's not is quite. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it, 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 no combat except that they, that uh, the grandfather Hussein, King Hussein. Um, had to kick out the Palestinians because they were going to try and take over, and this was the but this was the Black its, September. Uh, in terms operation. of its place in the region now, how stable it is has, Jordan? Uh, it is stable in as much that it's always or, or the. Or, or the royalty has always been attacked, and you've got, for example, after the Arab Spring, I mean, the great problems there. But the biggest problem for Jordan, although he says it's a heavy burden on our society, and that, but we're very flattered that people want to come, is is the, is the question of the refugees from Syria. Mm. And when you look, there are probably about eight hundred thousand in a kingdom which is very small that has limited uh, uh, facilities and also has pressures from outside, from Lebanon, from uh, Syria itself, and also from, from, from Egypt. So I think that is very important. The important thing is that British in, or United Kingdom, for example, has made a huge effort to keep alongside it and finance it in some ways, and that's part of this special relation that uh, Prince Salal talks about. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Former NATO Secretary-General and Defence Secretary George Robertson, now Lord Robertson, says Scottish independence would be a calamity for British defence. He was speaking at the Brookings Institution think tank in Washington and he said that Americans ought to be telling Scotland the same thing. Christopher, why? Uh, Well, he thinks Americans should because he says, for example, it would be a calamity and be calamitous um, if uh, Scotland's independence... Uh, ruptured Britain's defence policy. And Britain's defence policy is tied inextricably, he believes, with American defence policy. And it's, you know, the coalition of willing, willing and, and, and things like that. Now, he went to America to give us a speech, and he happened to give this one, and it was he had been invited by the Brookings Institute. So he wasn't making any big uh, plea. But he thinks that the, there is, for example, a Scottish diaspora, there is uh, great American respect and influence in Scotland, and that senior people, and Obama's already been saying something like this, ought to be saying, beware of thinking that you can break up the whole concept of a United Kingdom. George Washington, I seem to... uh, George Robertson, I seem to remember when he was Mm. a defence secretary, saying uh, that devolution, being a Scot, he knew about this, devolution of Scotland, Scotland could result in a breakaway from the United Kingdom. And I think he's he's been right. Just briefly, I suppose one of the biggest issues would be if there were to be Scottish independence is what happens to the nuclear weapons system carried in submarines from Fast Lane. And you have an interesting thought about that. Well, that's right. I mean, where are you going to book them? Just supposing you had to get them out. It might be sort of 10, 15 years, 20 years before they had to go on and move on somewhere else. And by that time, you may have decided not to have any. I don't know. But the point is, there are very few places where you can put them. Except I have one thought. Go on. You can put them in America. Mm. The Americans uh, on the East Coast in America, where there is the NATO facility, where we go to test uh, fire off Florida, etc. But there's absolutely no reason, because these are independent deterrents. They're they're intercontinental ballistic missiles. You can plant them anywhere, and that's that's as good a place as anything. And that would really seal, wouldn't it, (laughs) the special relationship? It certainly would. Um, Just before we finish this week, uh, we must not uh, finish without talking about the 20th anniversary of the genocide in Rwanda. Um, (laughs) 
remember it like it's yesterday, really. Um, but what, what do you think the international community is looking at that and saying 20 years on? 20 years on, it is saying, have we still got a problem with the international system that didn't stop that happening? And what's the answer to that? Uh, the answer to it is that we don't have the international system that will stop it happening again. And when, when was it, 800,000 died in a period of, what, 100 days? Mm -hmm. It was a, a, a remarkable thing. Africa, every person you talk to in, in, in strategic studies at the moment say, look at Africa if you're looking for the next genocide, looking for the next war. All right, looking ahead to, to next week, um, we have this meeting, obviously, that may or may not take place on Ukraine. What else is there to look out for? There's a meeting also of the JSC. Uh, which will which will come after that meeting with an assessment of of, of British part in it. We were talking earlier in the programme about uh, the, all the generals being sent around Europe to sort of smarten up and uh, put put new systems in, in place. Do not forget, uh, the people that are going to be in those systems are British forces mm -hmm. and British commanders from from sort of one star general uh, down to one star private. And so these things that happen and seem to be so sort of ephemeral that are happening, they concern everybody who's starting a career at Catterick tomorrow. All right, Christopher, thank you. And thanks to all of our guests this week. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. We're back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. And bye-bye for now. And music, music for the British forces.